Wisteria. Energy. 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 Hello everyone, welcome back to my channel. So we're going to continue with our Drac Von Stoller collection of stories. This one's called The Legend of Haunted Hills Cemetery. Deep in the woods on top of a desolated hilltop stood the most haunted cemetery ever known, called Haunted Hills Cemetery. Legend has it that in 1855, a man by the name of Jester Flats was the new sheriff in town. One thing the townspeople had no idea about when Jester Flats was appointed the new sheriff of Deadsville was that the sheriff had his view of how he wanted to bring law and order in the town of Deadsville. His way would be utilising an axe. He was the most feared sheriff the town of Deadsville had ever known. According to the son of the sheriff, just after he was born, Jester's wife was caught in bed with another man in his own home. Jester happened to forget his axe that day and never left home without it. But this day would be a day he'd never forget. Jester noticed a horse tied to a tree next to his house. Jester didn't like the looks of it. So he cautiously opened the front door of his house and heard laughter coming from his upstairs bedroom. Jester took his axe out of the closet and went upstairs to investigate. Jester slowly opened the bedroom door and there lying on his bed was his wife and another man. Jester started yelling at them both and said, You both know how I feel about sleeping with another man's wife. Jester and the man got into a struggle, but Jester hit the man upside his head and he fell to the ground with blood dripping from his head. His wife pleaded with her husband not to kill him. But Jester said, Shut up, woman. Then he raised his axe above his head and cut the lover's head off and limbs as his wife screamed in agony. Then he pulled his gun out of his holster, pointing it at his wife at point-blank range. Then he pulled the trigger. She fell dead to the floor. Jester said, Justice has been served. Most townspeople would make every effort to avoid crossing paths with Sheriff Flats, in fear of being falsely accused of a crime they never committed and facing the dreaded axe-wielding sheriff in court. After many years of law and order and the overcrowded Haunted Hill Cemetery from the axe-wielding sheriff, the townspeople had enough. They decided to take the law into their own hands. An angry mob of men decided to visit their sheriff, and it wasn't going to be a pleasant visit. The men rushed into the sheriff's office, wielding their axes, and after the men chopped his body into a million pieces, they put his torso and limbs in a sack, carried his head with the bag to the Haunted Hill Cemetery for public display. The legend of Jester Flats and the Haunted Hill Cemetery cast a shadow over the town of Deadsville, chilling the hearts of the residents and visitors alike. But as with all tales of terror, Curiosity does have a way of drawing people towards, you know, things that we fear the most. A group of daring teenagers, fueled by a mix of bravado and scepticism, decided to put the legend to the test. Armed with flashlights, cameras, and the reckless fearlessness of youth, they set out to explore the haunted old cemetery one moonless night. 
the stories of echoing cries and ghostly apparitions were not enough to deter their determination to experience the supernatural firsthand. The air was thick with anticipation as the teenager stepped foot into the eerie cemetery. The gravestones stood like silent sentinels, marking the final resting place of those whose lives had been cut short by the axe-wielding sheriff. Shadows danced among the tombstones, and a chilling breeze rustled through the trees, as if the spirits themselves were stirring in response to the intruders. As the teenagers ventured deeper into the cemetery, their flashlights flickered and cast wavering beams of light over the tombstones. Whispers seemed to drift on the wind. The air grew colder with each step. Unnerved but undeterred, they pressed on, drawn towards the heart of the haunted ground. At the centre of the cemetery, the teenagers discovered a weathered headstone bearing the name Jester Flats. The moonlight revealed details of the carving, a grim representation of the axe-wielding sheriff himself. With an air of defiance, one of the teenagers said, Let's see if this legend is real or just a bunch of old stories. They began to chant the name, Jester Flats. Their voices grew louder with each repetition. Suddenly, a distant sound echoed through the cemetery. The unmistakable sound of chopping, as if an axe was striking wood. The teenagers exchanged uneasy glances, their scepticism giving way to such an unease. A low moan carried on the wind, and the air seemed to thicken with an oppressive weight. Shadows twisted and contorted, taking on grotesque forms that danced along the edges of their vision. The teenage bravado wavered, as fear crept into their hearts. Then, in the darkness, a figure emerged. A spectral figure that bore an uncanny resemblance to the headstone carving. It was Jester Flats, or at least an apparition that bore his likeness. The ghostly sheriff brandished an ethereal axe, its blade glinting with a malevolent gleam. Frozen with terror, the teenagers watched the ghostly sheriff advance towards them. His eyes burned with another worldly fire, and his lips curled into a cruel smile. The sound of chopping grew louder, filling the air with a rhythmic cadence that sent shivers down their spines. Panic screams pierced the night as the teenagers turned to flee, but an unseen force seemed to hold them in place. The ghostly sheriff's laughter echoed in their ears as his spectral axe swung the air, the chilling sound of impact followed by heart-wrenching screams. Their desperate cries joined the chorus of those who had fallen victim to Jester Flats. Brutal justice. The apparition's laughter melded with their fear, creating a symphony of terror that never berated through that cemetery. And as quickly as it began, the night was consumed by an eerie silence, broke only by the wind whispering through the tombstones. The sun rose on the town that would forever remember the tragic fate of the curious teenagers who had dared to test the legend. Deadsville's haunted past declaimed yet more souls. A chilling reminder that some stories are not meant to be explored, but rather to be left in the shadows of the past and kept buried. 
And that's our first story from Drac Mon Stoller. The next story is an urban legend story. Of course, still by Drac Mon Stoller, though. Don't flash your headlights, urban legend. It was Halloween night, and Jimmy was partying with a gang that he was excited about joining called the Demon Knights Gang. There was only one thing that would prove he was worthy of being part of the Demon Knights Gang, and Darren, who was head of the gang, would tell him. Jimmy, you know it's not an easy thing joining our gang, said Darren. I know, but I want to be somebody, and I'm not afraid of any challenge. So come on, tell me what it is you want me to do, asked Jimmy. Okay, but there's no backing out once I tell you. And if you try to back out, the only thing you'll be getting is a bullet to the back, explained Aaron. Don't worry, I'm up for anything, replied Jimmy. Here's what I want you to do. Follow me outside, explained Aaron. Jimmy and Darren went outside to Darren's backyard. See the car over there, said Darren. Yeah, I see it, replied Jimmy. Get inside, let me know what you think, asked Darren. Jimmy opened the driver's side door and stepped in and said, Wow, this is a real beauty, exclaimed Jimmy. Darren put his hands inside the driver's side window and bent over and said, This is where you come in. Your job is to drive this car down Willow Road without any headlights on. And when the first car flashes their headlights at you, you will turn your car around and chase them down, ring their car off the road. Then you will pull your car off the side of the road and pull out the shotgun that is in the back seat of the car. Go up to their vehicle and finish them off with a shot to the head. Make sure they're dead. Then you will be accepted into the Demon Knight's gang. Jimmy replied with excitement, I'm your man. Darren patted Jimmy on the shoulder and said, I knew I could count on you. Jimmy said, I'll do better than that. I'll bring their head back for proof and set their car on fire. Okay then, I'll be waiting for you at my house at midnight, said Darren. Jimmy started the car and asked Darren what the time was on his watch. Darren replied, 7pm. Jimmy said, see what midnight with their head, laughing as he backed out in the car of Darren's driveway. Jimmy drove off to get something to eat and then watched a movie to pass the time away. Jimmy stopped by his apartment to get his watch, to make sure he left from the movie theatre by 11 to head to Willow Road, begin his initiation to the Demon Knights gang. After Jimmy finished his dinner, he arrived at the movie theatre by 9pm and left the theatre by 10.45pm, got in his car and headed down Willow Road to do what Darren told him to do. As Jimmy was driving down Willow Road without his headlights, on a car approaching... The driver said, that driver is going to run off the road or cause an accident. So the driver flashed his headlights at Jimmy's car. And as the driver passed by Jimmy's car, Jimmy turned on the car's headlights, rear-ended the driver in front of him, causing the driver to lose control of his vehicle and crash into a ditch. Jimmy pulled his car off the side of the road, grabbed the shotgun from the back seat of his car and approached the wrecked wrecked vehicle that he'd just run off the road. He pumped the shotgun, blew out the driver's side window. The driver in the vehicle, barely conscious, said, What do you want? Your head, said Jimmy. The driver replied, Please don't hurt me. 
Jimmy said, shut up. Close your eyes. It will be over real quick. Jimmy raised the shotgun and shot the driver in the chest, then pulled a hunting knife out of his back pocket and cut the driver's head off his shoulders. Jimmy set the car on fire and brought the severed head back to his car and placed it in the front seat of the car and drove right back to Darren's house to show proof that he followed through the initiation. He could now be a real gang member of the Demon Knights. Jimmy sped off in his car as the driver's car burned with the decapitated body inside. As the stroke of midnight came, Jimmy pulled into the driveway of Darren's house and took the severed head inside Darren's home and placed it on Darren's kitchen table and said, I believe I passed the test and feel I'm worthy of being in your gang, the Demon Knights. Darren replied with excitement on his face. You did follow through. I'm proud of you. And for that being said, you are an official member of the Demon Knights. Since you went way beyond what was expected, you would be my right-hand man. If I need business taken care of, if you know what I mean, I have no doubt that you will not let me down. Darren handed Jimmy a leather jacket with the Demon Knights gang embroidered on the back of the coat. Jimmy put the jacket on. Obviously, he was beaming with delight. Finally, I belong to a gang and have real friends that need me. Jimmy finally got his wish, for all the dangerous out circumstances, of course. And if, by the chance, you find yourself travelling down Willow Road at night and a vehicle is driving without their headlights on, it might be a good idea to ignore it and drive on. Or you might end up like that poor driver that flashed his headlights and lost his head over the whole ordeal. Hmm. The end. But, of course, that is the way Dracula and Stella will tell the story um as you know he does like to change them a little bit so they are not exactly the same as what they would be in the next story though by drac von stella is called drac von stella has risen from the grave after drac von stella and nick mondrell's takeover of the world in 666 days Nick and his wife, Isabella, lived a simple life in Drac von Stoller's castle, the old castle for many years. But Nick wanted to be what Drac von Stoller was, and all that was on his mind was being the king of the vampires. Nick couldn't shake off the thought of just being a Drac von Stoller's right-hand vampire the rest of his life. So Nick decided to invite Drac von Stoller to his castle and poison him and drive a stake through his heart. With Drac von Stoller out of the way, Nick Mondrell would take over the throne and become king of the vampires. Nick sent the invitation by way of one of his henchmen on horseback. It arrived a few days later, knocked on Drac von Stoller's castle door. The rain was intense, with a lot of thunder. The door opened and Drac von Stoller's servant answered and said, May I help you? Yes. I was sent by Nick Mondrell to deliver this invitation to Drac von Stoller, Nick Engelmans replied. Drac's servant said, I'll see that Drac von Stoller receives the invitation. Drac's servant entered Drac von Stoller's study to deliver the invitation. The servant said, Drac, I have an invitation that has just been delivered by Nick Mondrell's henchman. Drac placed his hand out and the servant placed the invitation in Drac's hand. Drac 
opened the request and read it aloud. Nick has invited me over to his castle for dinner tomorrow evening to celebrate our friendship and the takeover of the world. Drac was excited to see his good friend Nick once again, but Drac's excitement about spending some time with his friend tomorrow evening would be short-lived, once Nick added a little poison to his drink. Drac told his servant he was going out for the night, would be hanging out with some friends at the Vampire Tavern. Drac hopped in his casket-shaped car and sped off down the road to Vampire Tavern. Drac pulled into the parking space that was reserved for him, stepped out of his car and entered the Vampire Tavern for a night of drinking and live music. Drac stepped up to the bar and the bartender said, Drac, what can I get you tonight? Oh, make it a Bloody Mary on the rocks, Wolfman. The Wolfman howled and poured Drac one stall of the Bloody Mary, Drac gulped it down, wiped the blood from his mouth, slammed his glass down on the bar and said, Pour me another wolfman, make it a little stronger. The wolfman poured him another, then Drac said, I'll see you shortly. I'm just going to listen to my favourite band, the ghouls of the night. Okay, Drac, I'll see you around, the wolfman howled. Drac parted hard, as he always does at the vampire tavern, but Drac knew... The phone had to end before the sun would start to rise. Drac checked his watch, downed a few more shots of Bloody Mary, and said goodbye to the band, staggered over to the bar and said, Hey, Wolfman, I'll see you tomorrow night. The Wolfman replied, I'll be here waiting to buy you up some more Bloody Marys when you return. Drac exited the tavern, got in his coffin car, drove back to his castle to sleep just before sunrise. Then when the sun set, he would head over to meet Nick Mondrell in the castle for dinner and celebration. But for Drac von Stoller, the only thing that would be celebrated at Nick's castle would be his death. Night came. Drac von Stoller rose from his coffin and said goodbye for the last time to his servant, then got in his coffin car, sped off down the road to Nick's castle. As the rain poured down and the lightning lit up the skies, the thunder cracked open in the atmosphere, settled in the distance. Drac's eyes were red as fire, as the excitement of spending time with his friend Nick was just moments away. Drac pulled to the gate of Nick's castle. One of Nick's henchmen opened the gate to let Drac drive on through, where death was waiting for him very soon. As Drac pulled up to the front of the castle, the henchman opened Drac's car door and said, Hurry, Drac, it's pouring down hard out here. Nick's been expecting you. Drac shook off his cape, and the henchman let Drac inside the castle. Nick escorted Drac into the study, while his maidservants prepared their meal for their dinner. Nick poured Drac a Bloody Mary. Nick poured himself a vampire drink. He concocted himself. Well, Drac, it's been a very long time since we've been able to sit down as friends and talk about our victory over the earth, said Nick, with a smile on his face. Yes, it has. I couldn't think of anyone I would rather share this moment with, replied Drac. Why don't we toast to our victory over the earth? We could not have done this without our team of vampires, said Nick, and their glasses touched together. Nick watched with excitement on his face as Drac von Stoller finished off his Bloody Mary drink that was laced with poison. Nick proceeded to open a wooden box on his desk which contained a steak that would be used to drive through Drac von Stoller's heart. Drac said, Nick, 
I'm having a tough time breathing right now. Drac gasped for air once again and said, Nick, why? Then Drac's head hit the top of Nick's desk. But Nick knew poison would not be enough to finish off the vampire, especially the king of vampires. Nick called two of his henchmen to carry Drac one dollar down to the family crypt, where Nick would drive a stake through his heart as he lies in the casket. Nick had already purchased for Drac von Stoller's final resting place. As the two henchmen placed Drac's body in the casket, Nick said to the henchman, That will be all. The henchman left the crypt and Nick took the hammer and stake out of the wooden box. He placed the tip of the stake on Drac's chest and raised the hammer and pounded the stake through Drac von Stoller's heart as Drac tried to pull the stake out. But he just said, Nick... You'll never get away with this. Nick just laughed and said, Oh, I just did. Now with you out of the way, I will be the king of vampires. Nick closed the lid of the casket and called a meeting with all the vampires throughout the world to announce his takeover of the throne and for proof that Drac von Stoller was dead in his coffin and his body was on display for one day so that other vampires could pay their last respects to the king of vampires. Nick assumed his role as king of vampires. That would be short-lived because one of Drac von Stoller's servants found out through one of Nick's henchmen when he was at the vampire tavern that Nick was keeping Drac von Stoller's body sealed in the tomb in his crypt heavily guarded by some of his henchmen round the clock. Drac's servant told the henchmen he could make him a vampire with special powers, not even Nick possessed. Then... As the servant poured another glass of whiskey to the henchman, he pulled out a red bottle that only contained human blood and said, Before I give you this special potion that was kept locked inside a vault of Drac von Stoller's castle, you must show me where Drac von Stoller's tomb is inside Nick's crypt. If I show you, will you give me the magic potion? asked Nick's henchman. Sure thing, as he was laughing under his breath. Drac's servant's magic vampire potion had no magic at all, and all Nick's henchmen would be getting, for leading him to Drac von Stoller's crypt, would be a slit of the throat. The henchman did as promised, and led him straight to where Drac von Stoller's body was. Luckily, the two guards were passed out drunk. They were meant to be guarding the tomb. Drac's servant thanked Nick's henchman and handed over the vampire potion, and the henchman drank it and said, Now I'm going to be king of vampires. That's when Drac's servant came up behind him and slit his throat and said, You stupid fool. There was no magic vampire potion, just regular human blood. Drac's servant came over to where the guards were passed out drunk on the floor and slit their throats, then pushed the top of the tomb off exposing Drac von Stoller's coffin, hoping removing the stake from his heart would bring him back to life. The servant carefully lifted the stake from the heart and watched in amazement as Drac von Stoller was slowly coming back to life. Drac von Stoller rose up out of the coffin. Thanks. Thank you, kind servant. You will be rewarded greatly for bringing me back to life. Drac von Stoller burst through the crypt door as more guards were approaching, trying to stop him from leaving. But Drac von Stoller's powers were too strong for them, and Drac was able to fight them off and escape back to the castle unscathed.
word got back to Nick about Thrak von Stoller rising from the dead, which infuriated Nick, and he knew their friendship was over, and it would be a fight to the death with Thrak von Stoller. Later that evening, Thrak von Stoller and some of his loyal vampire friends stormed Nick Vondrell's castle out for blood. Thrak von Stoller burst through Nick's study window and said, Nick, you must die for your betrayal of me. Nick replied, I was tired of being your right-hand vampire. I wanted to be king of vampires, and the only way to be king of vampires was to kill you. Nick and Drac battled to the death for hours. Drac's powers were just too strong for Nick. Drac von Stoller said, It's a shame it had to end this way, but you leave me no choice. Then Drac von Stoller tore into Nick Mondrail's chest and pulled out his heart and squeezed the last drop of blood into his mouth. Then he dropped Nick's lifeless body on the floor of the study and told his loyal vampires to spread the word throughout the world that Drac von Stoller had risen from the dead and now is king of vampires once again. Drac von Stoller decided right there he wouldn't have any more right on vampires by his side so that he would be in total control of all vampires on the earth from now on. Drac von Stoller went on to be king of the vampires for hundreds of years, until he decided to pass on his title to the next great warrior vampire. The End And those are three wonderful tales from Drac von Stoller. He does many short stories and lots of bundle collections. You can get them from Google Play Books, all for free, where you can read a complete series of full collections by Drac von Stoller. Thank you for listening and many blessings. Hello everyone, welcome back to the Drac von Stoller collection. Wisteria here who will be reading the stories. This story is called Zombie Bride. Johnny and his new bride Marie were so excited that the wedding bells were going to ring at 7pm that night and couldn't wait to arrive at their honeymoon destination after their wedding. But their wedding bliss was about to turn into wedding sadness. After the wedding was over, the two newlyweds got in their car, heading to the airport to their honeymoon destination. It started raining and lightning, causing Johnny's visibility of the road very difficult to judge the centre lines. But the two newlyweds were in love and not paying close attention to their surroundings. Marie sat close to Johnny sharing kisses as their car barreled down the road. The moment their lips touched another vehicle on the side of the road lost control and hit them head on, causing Johnny's bride to be ejected from the car. Marie went head first through the car's windshield and passed through the windshield of the other vehicle that hit them head on, killing her instantly. Johnny jumped out of his car in hopes his beautiful bride was still alive, but that would not be the case, because just as her head passed the windshield of the other driver's windshield, the jagged clasps cut all the way through her neck, causing her head to be severed right off her shoulders, landing on the driver's front seat in the driver's lap. Johnny had no idea his bride had lost her head until he pulled her out of the windshield 
and blood was spewing out of her jugular vein, all down his white tuxedo. Johnny fell to the wet ground with his headless bride in his arms, crying, Why, God, why? Johnny's dead bride's funeral wasn't held until a few days later because her parents were on an overseas trip celebrating their 50th wedding anniversary. Before her parents arrived back from their trip, Johnny was hitting the bars, drinking and tried to drown out his sorrows with little use. Every time Johnny would pass by a woman that resembled his bride, it sent flashbacks to the accident, and the more he stared at them, his mind made him think it was really her, still in her dress, alive and well, smiling at him with open arms waiting for him to embrace her. But when he ran to her and put his arms around her loving image, the image faded. The woman would slap him across the face and yell out for the police to come take this crazy man away. The next morning, Marie's parents arrived home, only to be greeted by the police at their front door, to break the bad news to them about their daughter being killed in a car accident. Marie's parents blamed Johnny for their daughter's death, even though the police report said otherwise. After Marie's funeral, Johnny's guilt was eating him up inside about not being able to save the woman he promised to protect, and how she was swept away from his life forever. The following night, Johnny decided to go to the cemetery, dig up his bride and take her home, take care of her so they could be together forever. Johnny lost it, because no sane man would dig up his spouse and take a rotting corpse home and pretend she was still alive and that they could function as an average couple. But Johnny dug her up, took her home, laid his headless bride on the bed. That was going to be theirs to share. Johnny said, I think I forgot something. I know, I left her head on the passenger seat. Then he said, honey, I'll be right back. Johnny went to his car to retrieve her head and placed it on her shoulders to make her look whole again and turned out the lights and went to sleep, holding his dead bride in his arms. The next morning, Johnny sprayed perfume all over a wedding dress to bring down the stench. I mean, obviously... He brought a rotting corpse to the house. It stunk. He actually brought her downstairs to cook them both some breakfast. As Johnny placed her body in the chair and placed her head upon her shoulders, it just rolled off onto the kitchen floor. After several attempts of placing her head back on her shoulders, he decided to put her head on the table facing in front of his plate so he could feed her while he ate as well. Johnny lost touch with reality. He would talk to her while he was feeding her and downing a whiskey bottle. After he was through eating, he brought his dead wife into the TV living room so they could just chill and watch together. Johnny put his arm around her corpse as though they were on a date. In a drunken state, Johnny would turn her head on her shoulders facing him so he could kiss her cold, rotting lips. Johnny eventually passed out drunk and woke up hours later as darkness set in. Johnny sobered up a little and told his dead wife that it was getting late and they should get some sleep because they had a long day ahead of them tomorrow. Johnny picked up his headless bride, threw her right over his shoulder and carried her severed head in his left hand and headed upstairs to turn him for the night. Johnny barely made it up the stairs because he was feeling a little drunk still. Finally, he did reach the top of the stairs and opened their bedroom door, placed a rotting corpse on their bed.
Johnny tucked in his bride, then laid right beside her, sprayed some more perfume on her because the smell was getting even more unbearable to withstand. Johnny reached over and turned off the light on the nightstand and said good night to his bride. Then as Johnny lay there sleeping, his dead bride stood up. On his bed was her head on her shoulders and called out his name several times. Johnny finally woke up and turned on the lamp on the nightstand, thinking he just heard things, but he didn't imagine it at all. His dead bride said, Johnny, I'm hungry. I'll fix you something, my love. She chimed in and said, I think you'll do just fine. His dead wife then proceeded to tear his flesh apart with a rotting heave as Johnny lay there, screaming until his last breath. When morning came and his neighbour came out of his home to see where the overwhelming, overwhelming smell was coming from, well, the scent led straight to Johnny's house. The police were called out to investigate. The police knocked on Johnny's front door several times, and after no one came to the door, the police kicked in the door and had to cover their noses as they searched the house from top to bottom. Finally, one of the officers yelled out, I found where the smell's coming from. All the other officers raced upstairs to Johnny's bedroom and couldn't believe their eyes. There lying on the bed was Johnny's torn apart body, with his headless bride laying on top of him. The police assumed it was a murder-suicide and left it at that. As much as Johnny loved his new bride, he should have left her in the ground and visit her grave as any sane person would. But his guilt took over and disturbed him, which made him disturb her final resting place. And, well, he paid a fatal price with his life for doing so. The end. That's the end of that story. Wow, crazy guy. The next story by Drak von Stoller is called The Black Widow. Samantha Stone never had a chance to mature into a beautiful woman because of her looks that she was born in the eyes of a man's world. Samantha's beauty was not earth-shattering, even though Mother said she was beautiful just the way she is. Samantha stood six feet tall, with matted hair and brown eyes. It's a shame her hopes and dreams of becoming a model someday would be shattered before she is thoroughly grown-up woman. Every man that gazed upon her, well, let's just say it was not in a respectful way. After years of disappointing relationships, Samantha snapped and decided these lustful dogs would pay dearly for not treating her with respect. Samantha always confided in her best friend Sarah to help her get through her rough times. One night, as Samantha was crying on Sarah's shoulder, Sarah chimed in and said, I'm sick and tired of the way these dogs, meaning men, are treating you. So being the friend that I am, who loves and cares about you, I want you to call this woman who can help you. Her name is Gilda, and yes, she's a witch. But if any one person in this world can help you, she can. Yes, I too said the same thing about why would I call upon a witch to solve my problems. I feel like I can conquer anything that stands in my way, thanks to Guild the Witch. Please, give her a call. 
Thank you so much, Sarah. You're a true friend. And don't worry, you have my promise that I will call her in the morning, said Samantha. Morning came. Samantha contacted Gilda by phone to seek revenge on her tormentors. Gilda reassured Samantha that she had the perfect spell to help her solve a problem. As Samantha hung up the phone, she wiped the salty tears from her cheeks and took in a deep breath and stared into a bathroom mirror saying, I'm going to get my life back and make them all pay. She hurried up, getting dressed, and got in her car with anticipation of meeting Gilda. The weather conditions were windy and rainy as the vehicle barrowed down the road. Her adrenaline was rushing through her veins like a freight train. As her car turned into the gravel driveway, she started having second thoughts. But she knew if she backed out, she wouldn't only let herself down, but the one and only person who never let her down, and that's Sarah. She knew the pain was too great to give up now, so she proceeded to drive up the driveway to Gilda's cabin in the woods. The closer her car got to the cabin, the more frightened she became. But there was no turning back now. All she could see in her rearview mirror was her best friend Sarah's face telling her she could do this and get the vengeance she wanted. Samantha's car came to a rolling stop in front of Gilda's cabin. She grabbed her umbrella and got out of her car into the rainy night and approached the cabin with caution. Before she had a chance to knock on the cabin's door, the front door opened slowly. And there stood Gilda, just as Samantha had pictured her in her mind, old and dressed in black. Gilda motioned for her to enter the cabin. Samantha came in with a frightened look on her face, but the witch Gilda reassured her that she was safe and that she had already talked to her friend Sarah about the reasons for needing help. The witch motioned for her to sit in the chair next to the fireplace. The witch handed Samantha a cup that contained the potion that would give her what she needed to carry out her quest for vengeance. The witch told her when she woke in the morning, the drink will take full effect. As promised by the witch Gilda, Samantha transformed into a beautiful woman. But that's not all. When Samantha rose out of bed and walked up to her dresser mirror, with her eyes closed, she slowly opened them and screamed, I'm beautiful! I'm beautiful! Samantha paraded around her room and called Sarah to tell her the news and said to Sarah, There has to be more than this potion I drank because being beautiful only make these dogs men lust over me even more sarah said i guess the next man that gazes upon you something strange may happen i don't know after spending a few hours on the phone nightfall set in samantha told sarah she was getting ready to hit the bars to see what happens to the dogs that is men of course samantha got all dolled up and headed to the nearest bar where the men that frequented there gave us so much trouble as she entered the bar, every man's head turned, with eyes bugged out of their sockets and tongues wagging, hoping they would be one that would get their dusty jewel plucked. Men were whistling at her as she strutted up to the bar ready for a date, and knew which man she had set her mind on. That was Tom and Dave, because they were her biggest tormentors. Samantha tapped the two men on their shoulders and said, Hey boys. You're going to buy me a drink. They both turned their heads and said, Sure thing, baby. Samantha sat between both of them and said, 
Do you recognise me? I'm Samantha. Both men's jaw dropped. They dropped their beers on the floor. Before the men could get a word in, Samantha asked them both over to her place as a peace offering. Both men looked at each other and said, You bet. The two men followed her out of the bar and got in the car. As she started the car, she turned towards them and said, Are you boys ready for a wild night? And they both said, Yes! Samantha was laughing under her breath as the car sped down the road. Both men gave the high five, thinking they were getting an idle pleasure any man would desire from a woman of such beauty. Well, we're here. Are you boys ready for some action? said Samantha. They both eagerly replied, You betcha. Both men exited the car, grinning from ear to ear, as they opened the car door for her. Samantha put her arms around both men's shoulders as they walked to the doorstep of her house. As Samantha escorted the two men to her bedroom, she said, I'm going to freshen up. And while I'm doing that, why don't you boys get undressed and pull the bedsheet down, because this is going to be a red-hot night. The boys got undressed and did everything she asked. They thought they were on top of the world. Samantha surfaced moments later in a sexy teddy and said, Boys, are you ready? These two lustful dogs, men, said, Yeah, baby. Samantha turned off the lights and one of the men chimed in and said, Why'd you turn the light off? Samantha replied, It makes things more special. Then all of a sudden, Samantha transformed into a giant black widow spider. The lights came back on, and she pounced both men as her eyes widened. They did not know what the hell was going on. Both men tried their best to fight off the giant black widow spider, but they heard the voice of Samantha saying, Payback's a bitch, isn't it? Then the black widow spider spun a web over their bodies, holding them as a prisoner. The spider then bit into each one's neck until their heads rolled off the bed. All that was left was a bloody bed with web covering two headless bodies. Samantha had transformed back into the beautiful woman she was, but there was another catch to the witch's spell. That was, when Samantha was through killing all the tormentors, she would die. Samantha went on to kill another two men that gave her such torment to her for many years. Unlike Samantha, the black widow spider's fang sunk into the last man's chest and he took his last breath. So did she. When the police arrived at her home, because she was the last person seen with the man she killed, they got the shock of their lives. There, lying in a pool of blood in the bed, was the giant black widow spider dead on top of a dead man's body. The police had never encountered anything unexplainable such as this in all the years on the force. They weren't about to link this bizarre murder to the press because no one would believe their story anyway. Word to the wise, if you feel the need to degrade any woman, you may want to think twice. If you don't, you too could end up dead from underestimating what a tormented woman might have in store for you in the future. The end. Well, that's definitely um, an interesting story from Drac von Stella, The Black Widow. I can picture it now. 
So let's move on to the next story. This one's called Voodoo Doll, of course by Drakwon Stoller. Dr Phillips was an archaeologist that had a hunger for finding the big one, meaning a dig that would put him in the history books. But Dr Phillips wasn't a very patient man, and if anyone got in the way of him finding something worth celebrating, they were dead men. One night, while Dr Philip was reading his newspaper and smoking his pipe, he came across an interesting article that said there was a dig deep in the jungles of Africa, but no one had been able to recover the artefacts. And if they did, they would die, literally trying to. Being that Dr Philip's ego and temper was so big, he wasn't afraid of anything, knowing that if he were to bring ancient artefacts back to the US, he would get his wish of being famous and in the history books. So, Dr. Phillips chartered a plane and brought two of his closest colleagues along with him, Dr. Reeves and Dr. Smith. Dr. Phillips only brought his colleagues along in case they were to discover the artefacts. He would, obviously, shoot them if they, sort of, tried to take off with them and then leave the body for the wild animals to feast on. Dr. Phillips and his colleagues arrived late afternoon at the dig site to survey the area before the dig in the morning. Dr. Phillips could hardly sleep that night. He was excited about the excavation in the morning. Dr. Phillips paced back and forth outside the tent and decided to load his pistol and make sure he had enough ammo on him to stop anyone that got in his way. Morning finally arrived and Dr. Reeves and Dr. Smith shared a pot of coffee on the portable stove outside their tent with Dr. Phillips before starting their dig. Dr. Reeves said, Dr. Phillips, do you think we'll find anything worth bringing back to the States? Dr. Phillips replied, I didn't come all this way for a weekend getaway. Spend thousands of dollars for just the heck of it. You better believe we're not coming back home empty-handed. Dr. Smith chimed in and said, I've known Dr. Phillips many years and I've never never known him play around when it comes to something this serious. Okay, Dr. Reeves and Dr. Smith, are you ready to make history? They said, you bet we are. The three doctors set off into the jungle to start the dig. Dr. Reeves asked, who is that man over there? Dr. Phillips replied, he's probably trying to steal the ancient artifacts out of that cave. What are we going to do? exclaimed Dr. Smith. I tell you what we're going to do. I'm going to tell the man to get off this property because I paid a lot of money securing this site, said angry Dr. Phillips. Dr. Phillips approached the man who was wearing a headdress and said, Excuse me, sir, you're going to have to leave because my colleagues and I have a lot of work to do. I don't need anyone snooping around or disturbing this dig site. I'm only going to ask you nicely one time. If you don't leave this moment... I'll be forced to shoot you and let wild animals dispose of your body. The old man laughed. I'm not going anywhere. You and your friends are the ones who will have to leave because this is my ancestors' sacred ground. Not yours. Dr. Phillips pulled out his gun and pointed it straight at the old man's head and said, I'll give you two seconds to leave. If you don't, you're a dead man. The old man laughed and pulled out a doll. It looked exactly like Dr. Phillips. He took out a needle and poked it in the side of the doll's neck. Dr. Phillips 
dropped to the ground. The old man was a witch doctor. He twisted the doll's head off his shoulders. Dr. Phillips' head rolled off his shoulders as Dr. Reeves and Dr. Smith stood in fear as the witch doctor pulled out two more voodoo dolls and put needles in their heads. The two doctors tried to run, but the witch doctor twisted the dolls' heads off and the doctors' heads fell off their shoulders as their bodies dropped to the ground. The witch doctor just laughed and built a fire, then tossed the voodoo dolls into the fire and watched the three doctors' bodies burn to ashes. The men were presumed to be missing in the jungle of Africa. A search was conducted, but turned up nothing, no leads to their whereabouts. Dr. Phillips bit off more than he could chew by not listening to an old man that, unbeknownst to him, was a voodoo witch doctor. If he only knew in advance that a voodoo witch doctor's ancestors were buried at the dig site, maybe Dr. Phillips would have found another dig site. But let's be honest, he probably wouldn't have stopped. He was an egotistical doctor, and he was going to go ahead with the expedition anyway. So maybe he got exactly what he deserved. The end. And those are another wonderful three stories from Drac von Stoller. Thank you so much for listening and many blessings. Hello everyone, welcome back to my channel and to the Drac von Stoller collection. This story is called Thirteen Witches. Before I begin this story, remember when you were a little boy or girl, how vivid your imaginations were. When you read a book, you could close your eyes and somehow be in the story, see the scenery, have the characters come alive. In this story, you're about to find out about a little boy named Victor, who will bring his imagination to life on canvas, but this will have fatal consequences. Even though Victor's life was pretty messed up because of his alcoholic parents, he never grew up in his dr in a dream, you know, sort of a dream home, let's say. But he had a dream, a dream of becoming a famous painter. Victor, being an only child, would think his parents would spoil him rotten, but since the bottle was the only thing they cared about, Victor had to take a back seat and figure out his life on his own. As Victor's passion for painting grew each day, it was getting easier to drown out his sorrows of not having a stable family life. Any time Victor would get excited about a painting he worked so hard on, he would run downstairs, show it off to his parents, but all he got, in the end, were heartaches. Finally, he said after painting, what he thought was his best yet. Maybe this time they'll be proud of me. But the only reaction he got when he showed it to them was laughter and belittlement from by telling his parents was absolute junk. His father said a dog could paint better than that. Then his father and mother opened their cans of beer, threw beer all over the painting and they laughed hysterically. Victor started crying and shouted out loud, I wish you were both dead. 
His parents just laughed even more. Popped another can of beer. And put it down the neck. Threw their empty cans of beer at him. Hitting him in the back of the head. Victor ran upstairs to his room. Crying and angry as hell. He wiped the tears from his face. And decided to get out of the house for a while. So he could cool down and get a breath of fresh air. Victor's parents never took him outside to see the world, so he could associate with kids his age. And if that would happen, it would probably be kind of frightening to him, but at the same time exciting. Victor got on his jacket and marched out of his room down the stairs. As he was heading towards the front door, his father said, Where do you think you're going, Picasso? As he guzzled down another beer. I'm going out for a while. He slammed the door behind him. His father got up from the kitchen table with beer in hand, then opened the door and yelled out for Victor to get back in the house. But Victor didn't turn around. He kept on walking. His father yelled out again, Hey, Picasso, when you get back home, you're going to get the whipping of your life. Victor's mother raised her head out of the kitchen and said to her husband, Just let him go. Get back in here. Help me finish off the rest of the case of beer. Then we'll go upstairs and fool around. Sounds good to me. Besides, it's just a thorn in our side. Wish we never had a child to spend our money on. Victor pressed on the road, soaking up the sun, feeling good inside. So much, he forgot about his uncaring parents back home. The sight of seeing the buildings and people passing by him in the streets laughing, having a great time just added to the excitement of not being cooped up in his room all day and night. Also, staring out of his bedroom window, fantasising about what it would be like to see the world out there. Moments later, Victor's world was about to change. It would never be the same again the moment he stepped foot inside an antique store around the corner. He almost passed the store, but something made him stop in his tracks. Then he gazed up at the broken, dirty sign that read, Antique Store. He approached the door of the store, as though some force was pulling him there. So he opened the creaky door and stepped inside, and an old gentleman said, Come on in, little boy. I'm sure you'll find what you're looking for. Victor said, Thanks. He started looking around. It wasn't long before he found something. At the back of the store, on a shelf, was a wooden box with dust on it. Victor picked up the box to examine it, and when he blew off the dust, he was intrigued by the intricate detail of the handcrafted box. He knew right off the hand it had to be very old, and just as he opened the box to examine its contents, a bright lumescence surrounded the objects in the box. Victor rushed over to the front of the store to find out more about the box and its contents. He placed the box on the counter by the cash register and said, Sir, could you please tell me about this box of paints and brushes? It looks ancient. I'd like to buy it. The old man smiled and said, Little boy, I don't ask the owners about what they bring into my store. I just buy them from them and hope to make a few dollars on each item so I can keep the bills paid. So the store can remain open until I can no longer afford to keep it open. The boy said with a big smile on his face, Well, that's okay. I love 
to paint, and these old paints and brushes are what I need because I don't have any nice brushes. All my brushes are plastic. The bristles keep falling out every time I use them. So, if you could tell me how much, I would appreciate it. The old man said twenty dollars. Victor felt like his whole world came to an end because all he had in his pocket was a quarter. A river of tears came rolling down his cheeks as he looked with sadness into the old man's eyes. Victor slowly turned away from the counter and walked towards the front door to leave to go back to the miserable life he had waiting for him back home. Victor was crushed because he loved painting so much. Felt like he finally had the necessary tools at his fingertips to evolve into a kind of artist that always he would dream to be. As Victor put his hand on the doorknob of the front door of the store to exit the antique store, the old man said, Boy, come here. Victor turned round and wiped the tears of his face and replied, Why, I don't have that kind of money. My parents would never give it to me either. The old man asked Victor, How much do you have? Victor replied, Twenty-five cents. The old man said with excitement on his face, I'll take it. Victor couldn't believe what he was hearing. He didn't question it either. He reached in his pocket, pulled out the shiny quarter, and placed it on the counter. The old man took the quarter and told him to have a beautiful day and enjoy the paints. Victor grabbed the box and said, Thank you so much. Then he ran out of the store. But little did he know, that was no ordinary old man. It was a ghost. As Victor was standing outside of the antique store, holding the box tightly in his arms, he looked back at the store as he was walking away. And it vanished into thin air. Victor was so excited to have his new box of paints and brushes that he didn't think much about it and just kept on walking towards home. Finally, Victor made it home. He didn't bother telling his parents about getting his new brushes and paints as he walked past them, which didn't matter anyway because they were both passed out at the kitchen table from being drunk. He thought about walking up to show off his new paints, but he knew they would laugh at him. So he just kept walking until he made it to his bedroom, shut the door behind him, shut out the world, bury himself in his work. Victor opened his box of paints on the desk. Then all of a sudden there was a bright illuminating light surrounding the paints and brushes. The bright illuminating light didn't bother him at all. He just felt a sense of calm that had come over him and pulled out each paint and brush to start painting. He just realised he had no paper to use his new paints on. Then he started crying aloud again. What am I going to do now? Then out of nowhere, an easel with a canvas appeared next to his desk. Victor heard a faint voice say, Look up, Victor. Victor raised his head off his desk. He wiped away the tears from his eyes and then rubbed his eyes again. He thought it was just a dream, but this was no dream at all. He laughed and got up from his chair, touched the easel on canvas, and said with a big smile, I don't know what just happened, but thank you, whoever made this happen. Victor didn't realise he was about to open Pandora's box. And no matter from that moment on, 
There was no turning back from the evil that would be unleashed into the canvas. As he dipped his brush into the paint, he no longer had control over his thoughts or actions. Victor also did not know the history behind the box of colours and brushes, if he had known. I'm sure he would not have bought them, or anyone else for that matter. Legend has it that a wannabe artist by the name of Boris Hellman tried and tried for years to become a master painter. But instead of giving up, he just painted anyway, which ended up driving him mad because no one wanted his work and all they did was laugh or spit at his canvases. And that's when an horrific turn of events took place. He began to lure unsuspecting women into his run-down house and told them they would become works of art on his canvas and that it would make them wealthy and famous around town. But he had other plans for them instead. Boris was pretty much penniless, but he was a smooth talker and a handsome man, so obviously the women overlooked his run-down home and did as he asked. Boris would tell them he needed some of their blood to paint with and promise them it would be painless. But when the woman would see the razor-sharp instrument that he pulled out of the box, they would have a change of heart and want to leave immediately. Boris was infuriated, and instead of letting them go, he would slit their throats, drain enough of their blood to fill his empty jars that used to hold real paint in them. It wouldn't be long before the town suspected that Boris had something to do with the missing women. Eventually, he was caught in the act and was shot to death. But the box, he stored his paints of his victim's blood, and the brushes survived. They ended up in the witch's hands, and that's when things took an even darker turn. The witch has put a spell on the box that read inside the bottom of the box. Whosoever this box comes into the hands of, and uses the contents, will release an evil from hell like no other, and will die a horrific death. Victor never looked at the writing on the inside of the box. He probably wouldn't have cared, because he was so excited about being able to paint now, seeing that he had everything he needed to get started. Victor placed his paint jars on the flat panels at the bottom of the easel, started thinking about what he could paint. But that didn't matter, because an evil presence took over his body. And this would do all the painting for him. As each painting was completed at a rapid pace, he couldn't believe what he saw on the canvas. Each painting was that of a woman. And the last picture was completed. Then the evil's presence that was in Victor's body came out. And Victor looked in amazement and said, did I paint these? Wow, there are 13 of them. What an odd number. Then out of nowhere, an evil voice said, He must die now. Instead of feeling joy about what he had done, he was feeling terrified. He called out to the voice and said, Why must I die? The evil voice said, The box of paints is cursed. Whosoever has the box, uses the paints will unleash 13 witches to wreak havoc on this world. Then all of a sudden, the lights went out for a brief moment. 
When they came back on, Victor was surrounded by 13 witches. He was unaware what he had been used for by this evil force. Victor tried to run, but his feet wouldn't move no matter how hard he tried. Then one of the witches said, Don't be afraid, it will all be over in a second. Victor screamed out for his parents, but by the time his parents reached his bedroom door, it was too late. As his parents opened Victor's bedroom door, his mother screamed and fainted, and his father just stood outside the door in total shock at what he saw. What they both saw was one of the witches holding Victor's severed head by his hair in one hand. Then the witch holding Victor's head said, Here, cat and tossed the severed head to the father. But the moment he caught the head in his arms, he fell to the floor and suffered a massive heart attack, died on the spot. Then the witches vanished into thin air. When Victor's mother awoke, she saw her dead son's severed head on the floor next to her husband. And when she tried to wake her husband, she got no response. She too succumbed to the terrifying experience and died of a massive heart attack. It looks like Victor should have read the writing on the inside of the bottom of the box, but he didn't. Now the 13 witches can cast spells once again throughout the entire world. Hopefully, they can be stopped before the entire world is destroyed, so they all can be sent back to hell, where they probably do belong. The End so that is a very interesting tale from Drac von Stoller. I like it. It's different, but kind of cool, right? Anyway, so we're going to move on to the next story by Drac von Stoller, and it's called The Impaler. During the reign of King Drac von Stoller in the 14th century, a war was brewing between Drac and the Berkeleys. Even though Drax and the Berkeleys fought against each other. Both kings knew that one of them would ultimately die in the end. The Drax were barbaric men who would rob, torture and finalise things by impaling every living thing in the village. Drax men would roast the village people alive while they were still impaled. Then, after the bodies were roasted, Drax von Stoller's liking, of course, it had to be, it was time to sit down for a feast. Drax men would cut up pieces of roasted bodies and eat and drink wine as Drac von Stoller was cutting out the hearts of his impaled victims, squeezing every last drop of blood into his mouth. The Dracs were cannibalistic by nature, but this was what made the villagers more fearful of the name Drac. Whenever Drac von Stoller's authority was questioned, or just hungry for blood, he would squeeze the blood of a human's hearts into his mouth at least once a day so that no one would question his authority. If someone was going to break harm to him or anyone associated with Drac von Stoller, they were immediately impaled. Their heart was cut out from their chest. After Drac squeezed the blood of their hearts into his mouth, he would stand up and shout out, Whosoever questions my authority will have the same fate as this poor soul. As Drac was eating the arm of a man that killed one of his men, one of the Berkeley men rode on horseback to Drac's castle, shot an arrow with a message 
over the top of Drakvonstal's castle, and it read, The Berkleys have waged an all-out war on the Draks. One of the Draks' men came running down, shouting the message. Well, it's about time, Drak said with a chuckle. I haven't been to war with the Berkleys in over ten years. Let's not waste any more time. Let's prepare for war. Men, take what's left of the body that I've been eating, and fry the skin, cut it into pieces, so I have something to chew on in battle. Put one thousand pointed spears into the ground as preparation for victory against the Berkleys. Morning came, and with it came a great war. Drak's army was just too strong and loved the taste of the enemy's blood. Just as Drak had envisioned, Berkeley's men were all impaled. All of Berkeley's army was set on fire, where their torn bodies were impaled. Drak watched with his blood-red eyes, licking his chops, savouring every moment. He anticipated the self-satisfaction he would get out of cutting all the Berkeley's men's chests open and ripping out their hearts. The rest of Drak's army sat at tables outside, ready to cut into the bloodied bodies and have a feast to celebrate their victory. After defeating the Berkleys, Drakwonstola's impaling lasted another fifty years. His fatal mistake was holding a masquerade party at the castle. This was a golden opportunity for the descendants of the Berkleys. What better way to show up as a grim reaper, carry a scythe to finish Drak off? Everything went as planned. While Drak was squeezing a heart and drinking every last drop from it, the Grim Reaper came up behind Drak and swung his scythe. In one swift swoop, Drak's head flew off. The Grim Reaper held his head high in the air and said, This is for all the Berkleys that were impaled during the reign of Drak von Stoller, declared the Reaper. Since Drak was no longer the king, Drak's army surrendered to the descendants of the Berkleys. Drak's men were taken back to the Berkeley's castle, where they were either beheaded or impaled, just like the Berkeley's descendants were. The death of Drak von Stoller brought an end to the reign of terror that had plagued the land for over half a century. The descendants of the Berkeley's finally had their revenge, and peace slowly settled over the war-torn region. With Drak gone, the barbaric practice of impaling cannibalism were put to rest. The Berkeley family, having experienced immense suffering under the rule of Drak, decided to lead the country in a new direction. They believed in justice, fairness, compassion, and were determined to rebuild the kingdom from ashes of its dark past. The new rules initiated numerous reforms, aimed at ensuring the well-being of people and preventing such atrocities from ever happening again. Impaling was outlawed, and instead, a fair and just legal system was established. Punishments were meted out fairly, and the concept of innocent until proven guilty was embraced. Over the years, the descendants of the Berkeleys worked hard to restore peace and prosperity to the kingdom. They developed strong alliances with neighbouring countries, fostering trade and cultural exchange. The newfound peace allowed the kingdom to flourish, and its reputation started to change from a land of terror to a land of opportunity. As the years passed, the legend of Drak von Stoller and his castle persisted, spreading across the country. The castle remained abandoned, 
with no one daring to enter its dark, eerie halls. People claimed to hear ghostly cries and eerie laughter emanating from its crumbling walls, a haunting reminder of the evil that once resided within. Despite the ominous tales surrounding the castle, some adventurous souls couldn't resist the temptation to explore the secrets. Many entered the forsaken structure, hoping to find hidden treasures, unravel mysteries of the past. However, most who dared to enter never returned, leaving the castle to be shrouded in even more mystery and terror. In the aftermath of the war, the kingdom underwent a period of reconstruction and cultural revival. The descendants of the Berkeley sought to erase the dark history while honouring the memories of those lost during the conflict. Memorials were built to commemorate the fallen, and Day of Remembrance was established to pay tribute to the victims of Drac von Stoller's cruelty. The End Well, that's another very interesting story, and I like how it's called The Impaler because... If you are aware of, uh, there's a story of Vlad the Impaler, of course, which I guess is where the story is sort of taken from, you know. The next story by Dracolon Stoller is called Possessed. Jack and Brenda finally saved up enough money to move into the dream home. Jack and Brenda saw the beauty of things that were made with patience and care and love of craftsmanship. Not like in modern times a machine took over and destroyed the beauty just to mass-produce junk. Jack and Brenda found an old Victorian home built in 1901 and when they both stepped in the home they felt the house was built for their family. On the other hand, they may have felt that way but their daughter Molly didn't get the same vibes as they did. The moment Molly stepped into their home she felt an evil presence and told her parents something didn't feel right. Just like all parents, they told her to give it time, because it's foreign to her, and as the days go, she'll warm up to it. Molly said, I hope you're both right. The first night, everything seemed okay. But a few days later, Molly was having terrible nightmares, and her parents started to worry about their daughter, as any normal parent would. The next day, Molly was sent to a doctor to have herself checked out, but nothing was found wrong. Everything was fine. But, like clockwork every night, Molly would have the same dream, causing her to scream out loud in the middle of the night to her parents. Molly's parents had all they could take from their daughter screaming in the night and saying to them that they were coming to get her soul. When Molly's parents came to check on her every night, she became more violent and would curse and spit on them and her voice was that of a demon. Molly's father, Jack, decided it might be a good idea to call a priest, see if she was possessed. Jack got in touch with Father Ryan at the church, and just about a mile from where they live. Jack's voice shook. He could barely get the words out, because it was his daughter he loved so dearly and felt hopeless to save her from what was possessing her body. As Jack was discussing his daughter's problem to Father Ryan over the phone, he reassured Jack. He has seen this kind of behaviour before and would do everything in his power to rid the daughter from the evilness she possessed inside her body. Father Ryan said, Let me get my things together. I'm going to need them to perform an exorcism. I will be over shortly. Thank you so much, replied Jack. 
Father Ryan knew time was at hand, and there was no time to waste, because the possession described by Jack over the phone would be enough to kill Jack's daughter before the night set in. He grabbed his Bible, holy water, and placed them in his bag. He got in his car and sped down the road to Jack's house, ready to rid the girl of the evil demons. He pulled into Jack's driveway and gathered his things and knocked on the front door. Jack opened the door and said, Please hurry, please hurry. She's speaking in different languages. She's levitating, levitating off the bed. She's throwing up. Father Ryan and Jack cautiously entered a bedroom. Molly said, Welcome, Father Ryan. Come over here and give me a big kiss. Then she spat bloody red substance at his body and said, I know you want to stick your tongue in my mouth. Father Ryan opened his Bible and started reading verses and throwing a holy water at her, which just upset the demon inside of her. Then Molly's feet touched the floor and ran towards Father Ryan, pushing him to the floor on his back and started licking his face, saying, I know you like it. Father Ryan did his best to keep his composure, but this demon was out for blood. The holy water helped somewhat, along with reading verses from the Bible, but this demon was too strong and put both hands on the priest's head. Then with a quick twist, his head was severed from his body. The demon held his head in the air and let out a demonic laugh. Did you think bringing a priest would stop me from destroying this girl's body? Then the demon possessed Molly and threw the head at her father. Jack's wife, Brenda, started screaming and said, Please don't hurt my daughter. Take me instead, begged Brenda. The demon said, Shut your mouth. This body is mine. Nothing you say or do will change that. Brenda dropped to her knees, sobbing, saying, She's our only child. She's done nothing wrong to deserve this. The demon replied, Okay, I've had enough of your whining. Molly's possessed body walked to her mother. And in Molly's voice said, Goodbye, Mummy. Then the demon took back possession of her body, placed both thumbs on each eye and pressed them in as far as they could go as she screamed bloody murder. Jack tried to fight off the demon, but the demon threw Jack against the wall so hard he fell unconscious. Molly tried to get enough energy to stop the demon from losing her soul, but it was no use. Then there was a loud banging on the front door, because the next-door neighbours could hear Brenda's blood-curdling screams, so the police were called out to investigate. The cops got no response. They kicked in the door. And as the demon was about to finish off Jack, they entered the bedroom and told Molly to freeze, as the cold demon hands were about to twist Jack's head off of his shoulders. Again, the police repeated, Freeze or we'll shoot. There was no response from Molly. So the police opened fire, killing her instantly. Jack was all alone. He lost two of the most precious people he held dear to his heart. Jack was taken by ambulance to the hospital for observation, but shortly after he was released. Jack was lying in bed thinking, and he started drinking beer after beer and began crying. He felt he couldn't go any longer without his wife and daughter, so he pulled a revolver from the nightstand, put it to his head, 
and pulled the trigger. Sometimes when evil is at your heels, no matter how hard you try to devour it, it just happens anyway, leaving behind broken hearts that will never mend. No matter how hard you try to block out the tragedy that unfolded right before your eyes. The end. And those are another three stories from Thrak von Stoller. Thank you so much for listening and many blessings. Wisteria, Wisteria. Energy. 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 Twister. 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 Twister.